Would you now open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? Somebody once said there's going to be three surprises in heaven. Number one, who's there? Number two, who's not there? And number three, that you're there. How does heaven work? What about heaven? Who really gets to go there? How good do you have to be in order to get to heaven? Kids are taught from early on things like, if you're a very good boy or a good girl, you'll go to heaven. So the child grows up imagining that if he or she attains a certain level of deeds or good works, that God sort of owes heaven to them. Now, there was a guy who died, and he uh, was standing there at the pearly gates, and there was the angel with his clipboard. All the stories have Peter or the angel with the clipboard. And uh, the angel said to the guy, uh, while you were on the earth, can you, can you think of one great, good, kind, and um, gracious deed that you did to someone while you were on the earth? And the guy said, well, here's one. One day I was walking along and I saw this elderly lady being beaten mercilessly by this huge motorcycle thug and I stepped in. He was a gang member. I stepped in and I pushed over his motorcycle and I kicked him as hard as I could and I told the lady to run. The angel was impressed and said, wow, when did this take place? And the guy looked at his watch. He said, about three minutes ago. (laughs) Well, that's contrary to the gospel, isn't it? For Paul said that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. It's not by our deeds, it's by His deed, singular, alone. See, the problem is, whose standard are you going to use? Because by many people's standards, everyone deserves to be in heaven. As long as you're good or sincere moderately, that you're going to go to heaven. So they think sort of everybody or most people will be there. In fact, most people would assert, I'm a good person, I'm sincere, I try hard, so I'm going to go to heaven. I may not be perfect, but I'm okay, I'm good. And here's the real issue. Here's the real problem. How good is good? When you say you're good, whom are you comparing yourself to? The very best person on earth or the very worst person? See, when you talk about being good... How good exactly is good? Jesus said to the young man, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. That was the standard. But that wasn't that young man's standard. A telephone poll conducted by Time Magazine and CNN asked this question. Do you believe in the existence of heaven where people will live forever with God after they die? 81% said yes. 13% said no. Then they asked this question. Immediately after death, which of the following do you think will happen to you? 61% said they will go directly to heaven. 15% said they will go to purgatory. 1% said they're going to go to hell. 5% believe they will be reincarnated. 4% say it's just the end of all existence. But Jesus, in these verses that we consider brings up this whole issue of how good do we have to be to get into heaven. And then once we get there, what our position will be like. Let's go ahead and read not just verse 19 and 20, which we look at, but let's go back to verse 17, get that whole context of the paragraph. 
Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not uh, pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, three times in two verses, Jesus mentions heaven or the kingdom of heaven. And that's been a theme if you think back to the Sermon on the Mount and what we've studied The theme of the entire sermon is the kingdom, the kingdom ethics. This is what kingdom people look like, live like, act like. And the first mention of that thread is in verse 3, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we pick the theme up again in the verses we just read. Three times it's mentioned. But you'll notice something else in verse 19. It says, whoever therefore. Now, you know the rule. Whenever there's a therefore, you find out what it's there for. It ties the previous thought to the present thought. And the previous thought is Jesus is talking about the scripture, the word of God. It's inerrant. It will be fulfilled. He came to fulfill it. Every little jot, every tittle, down to the verb tenses, it's all the Word of God. Therefore, based upon the fact that God's Word is inerrant, that God's law is perfect, that God's commandments are without any kind of blemish, they're they're called Ten Commandments, not Ten Suggestions. Based upon the fact that it is God's revealed Word, God reveals to us the kind of righteousness that will allow a person into heaven and give that person status, being great, verse 19, in the kingdom of heaven. So this morning, what I want to do is slice up these two verses, but I want to reverse them. I want to begin in verse 20 and then go back to verse 19. And what I want to start with is getting into heaven, and then greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Getting into the kingdom of heaven, verse 20, and then greatness in the kingdom of heaven, verse 19. So let's look at verse 20 as a standalone verse, and then we'll, we'll uh, go back to the previous one. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I would call that a shock statement. I imagine the crowd that day, this was a jaw dropper. They heard Jesus say that and they went, oh my goodness, there's no hope for any of us if that's the case. For the creme de la creme, the ultimate righteous people in their view were two people, the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, 2,000 years ago, there was a saying that was going around Jerusalem. It's an ancient Jewish saying that if there's only two people in heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. They were the peak of righteousness. Now Jesus says, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Who were the scribes exactly? Scribes were men who researched and codified and discussed, deliberated upon Jewish law. And the Pharisees were a group of very conservative, I would say stilted, um, legalistic Jewish people. There were only 6,000 at the time of Christ who devoted themselves solely to being righteous. The word Pharisee, parashim in Hebrew, means the separated ones. These were the holy guys, the most holy guys in all of ancient Judaism. So what a shocking statement this would be for Jesus to say. And here's the basic point. How do you get to heaven? Is it by being sincere? Is it by being good? Is it by being very, very, very religious? No, it's not. You get to heaven, number one, by surpassing man's religious righteousness. What Jesus is saying is that all you could ever do, the best you could ever do, is not enough. Remember what God said in the Old Testament, Psalm 14, Paul built it up and reiterated it in the book of Romans. He says, God looked down from heaven to see if there's any righteous. And what did he say? There is none righteous. No, not one. You might say, well, God skipped my grandmother when he made that statement. No, God says there's none righteous. No, not one in that level of goodness that God describes as good. So in order to get into heaven, into the kingdom, we must surpass man's religious righteousness. And here's the point, I think. The righteousness Jesus describes here isn't the deeds that they do, the scribes and the Pharisees. It's an issue of the heart. It can't be an outward righteousness. It must be an inside job. It must be a perfect righteousness. So let's put it all together. We get into heaven by surpassing man's religious righteousness. And that comes by submitting to God's revealed righteousness. How do you get into heaven? You get into heaven by talking about your spiritual wealth. No, we get into heaven by admitting our spiritual poverty. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Nobody's going to stand before God and say, God, here's my list of all the good deeds. This causes me to deserve the kingdom of heaven. Now we get into heaven by admitting we're sinners, that we need God's saving grace. We are poor in spirit. Because, after all, God said through the prophet Isaiah, he regards all of the righteousness of mankind as filthy rags before him. Now let me take you back in history to the time the children of Israel were first God's people. And Moses was going up on Mount Sinai to get the commandments, the law, the precepts. And they were ready, they thought, for it. In fact, before Moses was going up to that mountain in Deuteronomy chapter 5, they said, Moses, you go and you listen to all that God tells you to tell us and whatever he tells you to do, for us, we will hear and we will obey. Isn't that a great statement? Would you imagine a whole group of people saying, whatever God says, you tell us and we'll do it. We'll be righteous. You know what God said 
As soon as they said that to Moses, the Lord speaks and says, Oh, that they had such a heart within them. Did you get that? What they need is a new heart. They need a new capacity. The problem is they wanted to do it. They didn't have the capacity to do it. All their good deeds could never make it. Oh, that they had a heart within them. Paul talks about this problem and explains it in Romans 10. Listen to what he says. They, that is the Jewish people, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They've not submitted to the righteousness of God. Let me take you back into the New Testament. Jesus is discussing an issue with his disciples, and he says, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. That was another shocking statement. You know what they said? They said, who then can be saved? Because they thought that God's blessing upon a person materialistically proved God's favor on them. And here Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich guy to go to heaven. They said, well, who then can be saved? Remember what Jesus said? He said, with men, it's impossible. With men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So listen up. The righteousness that God requires is the righteousness that God gives. The righteousness that God requires is the righteousness that only God can give us. It's not by assuming our own wealth. It's by admitting our own spiritual poverty. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke Just turn right, go down a few streets, you'll see it. Luke chapter 18. Verse 9. Also he, that is Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Know anybody like that? I'm good enough. I'm spiritual enough, I'm religious enough, and despised others. He said, two men went to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, one of those 6,000 really religious guys, and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Wow. Just the fact that Jesus compares a Pharisee to a tax collector is something. Because while the Pharisees were the most exonerated in the eyes of the Jewish public, tax collectors were the lowest on the totem pole. The IRS still isn't looked up to today, but they were really seen as the scum of the earth back then. But Jesus brings them both up in a parable. And he shows what I would say are four differences between religion and the gospel. Four differences between religion and the gospel. 
Here they are. Number one, religion emphasizes the outward. The gospel is concerned about the inward. Religion emphasizes the outward. The gospel emphasizes the inward. Notice it says this man stood and he prayed thus with himself. What I think that means is he's standing up in front of people and he's saying his prayers out loud so that others can hear them. And he's listening to himself and he's going, Ooh, that's good. That's really good. I can really pray. For him, it was all about show. It was all about facade. It was all about the outward demonstration. We'll get to it in Matthew chapter 6. But Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by men. It was all about the show that they could produce. In some circles, it still is about the show. In some circles, you are considered to be more spiritual by the fact that you don't wear makeup or you don't wear pantsuits or you don't do something outwardly that would show that you're not spiritual. It's all outward. Or in other circles, it's your spiritual jargon. If you can say hallelujah, praise God, bless the Lord, and fill in all of your sentences with lots of spiritual-sounding words, ooh, you're spiritual. It's all about the outward. I guess it's sort of like the jogger who puts the headphones on and the Nike shoes and the sportswear and walks until a car rounds the corner. And then they look like they're running hard and goes and starts walking again. It's all about the show. All show, no go. Number two, religion emphasizes prohibition while the gospel emphasizes freedom. Religion emphasizes prohibition while the gospel emphasizes freedom. Notice what this guy says. I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he lists what he doesn't do. He says extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. His was a righteousness of negatives. His was a righteousness of thou shalt nots. He was known for what he didn't do. You know, I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go with girls that do. It's all negatives. I've heard people sort of express it this way. I've given up so much to follow the Lord. Really? You've given up so much? You've given up aimlessness? You've given up having no purpose in life? And let's see, you've given up eternal hell. Well, yeah, you really sacrificed a lot to follow Him. Number three, religion sets up barriers. The gospel breaks down the barriers. Religion sets up barriers. The gospel breaks down barriers. This Pharisee says, not only do I thank you that I'm not like other men, but I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Here's a Pharisee who said, I'm one of God's chosen people, and I don't hang out with people who aren't God's chosen people. I don't want to get cooties from people like that tax collector. Sets up barriers. The gospel, though, is the great bulldozer. At the foot of the cross, all the ground is level ground. All can come. Uh, Paul said in the New Testament, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, Scythian, bond or free. We're all one in Christ. That's the gospel. And number four, religion says, work your way to heaven. 
Jesus says, I am the way. Religion says, work your way. The gospel says, through Jesus, I am the way. Notice the guy now turns from the negatives to the positive. This is what I don't do. But he says, verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. This is precisely what Jesus is condemning in Matthew chapter 5. Salvation by human effort. You know that there are only two religions in the world. You might say, well, Skip, you're wrong. I took the college course. There are many different world religions. That's true. Different titles. But you could put them all in one of two categories. One is the religion of human achievement. The other is the religion of divine accomplishment. One says, do this, do this. The other says, done in Christ, done, paid in full. Only one of two religions. Somebody once said, and I agree, the worst form of badness is goodness that becomes a substitute for the new birth. Listen to that again. The worst form of badness is goodness that becomes a substitute for the new birth. Anyone who says, I'm good enough, I'm religious enough, I don't need to be born again. That's the worst form of badness that exists because it keeps you out of heaven by leaning on your own deeds. So, how do you get into the kingdom? You've got to surpass man's religious righteousness. All that you can do is never enough. And you submit to God's revealed righteousness, what he accomplished in Christ. Now, let's go backwards. Let's look at verse 19. We've talked about getting in the kingdom of heaven. What about greatness in the kingdom of heaven? Back in Matthew 5, verse 19. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be great in God's eyes. You want to be a hero in heaven. Um, you want, when the awards are passed out, you to be right up there getting yours. How does it come? How is greatness in the kingdom of heaven? How does it work? You know, I love what Peter said. He was talking about having an abundant entrance into heaven. Or the New Living Translation says, a rich welcome. Isn't that what you want when you get there? Would you like to hear when you get to heaven, the angels going, man, we didn't know if you'd make it or not. We were taking bets. <laughs> Wouldn't you want a rich welcome, like a standing ovation? We knew you were coming. It's exciting, an abundant entrance. Great in the kingdom, least in the kingdom. What is greatness in the kingdom? Greatness in the kingdom or your position will be measured by your relationship to the revealed truth of God in Scripture. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven was directly proportional to your relationship to the revealed will of God in the Scripture. If you look again, just kind of overview, verse 17 down to verse 20, notice words like law, uh, fulfill, and then verse 19 and 20, whoever does and teaches them. Now listen carefully to this. Entrance into the kingdom is by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. But your position in heaven is determined by your works on earth. You're not saved by your works, 
But once you're saved by grace, your position in eternity will be determined by your works on earth. So greatness in the kingdom of heaven comes by practicing obedience to the scriptures. Jesus speaks about that. That's what verse 19 is all about. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments. Keep in mind, Jesus said every commandment is going to be fulfilled. Not one jot or tittle will pass. And whoever does and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of God. Now, when we read the terms like commandments and law, what is Jesus referring to? Jesus is not referring to ceremonial law. He's not saying that you have to keep all the rituals and ceremonies and then teach other people to keep all the rituals and ceremonies because they're already fulfilled in Christ. So if anybody comes to you and says, if you want to be great in heaven, you have to go through all of the Jewish rituals in order to be saved. That's wrong. In Romans or Ephesians chapter 2, having abolished the law of commandments contained in ordinances. They're fulfilled in Christ. So he's not speaking about ceremonial law. He's not speaking about Levitical law. We don't bring animal sacrifices to church. Aren't you glad? Would that be a gross service? We're not keeping Levitical law. The church was never told to keep Israel's law. In fact, when Jesus died, what ripped? The veil in the temple, the curtain in the temple. And when that ripped, God was giving a statement to mankind, the way to the most intimate place, the Holy of Holies, my presence, is now open. Anybody can come by the death of one, not by the death of animals, through the Levitical code. Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So he's not speaking about ceremonial law, not speaking about Levitical law, nor is he speaking about traditional law. Now back then, put yourself in their shoes, when they heard the term commandments or law, some of them misinterpreted the meaning as the Pharisees and scribes misinterpreted the meaning. To them, the law included the oral law. Not just what the Bible said, but all of the discussions and deliberations of the rabbi on the written law. Let me tell you how bad it got. These guys would sit around and discuss the meaning of Scripture and then write volumes. It's called the Talmud eventually. Volumes of what that meant, what Moses exactly meant. For an example, the law, the Bible said that the Jew can't carry a burden on the Sabbath. And they'd look at each other and go, but what is a burden? And they discussed what a burden was and what it's not. And they came up with this, quote, food equal in weight to a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice upon, close quote. They discussed that stuff. Then the Bible said that you couldn't work on the Sabbath. Now, most people could figure out what that means, but, oh, you've got to write it down and discuss it and deliberate on it. And so they said, well, one of the things you can't do on the Sabbath is write. But what is writing exactly? And so they said, quote, he who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right hand or left hand whether of one kind or two kinds, if they are written with different inks or in different languages, he is guilty. Also, he that writes on two walls that form an angle or two tablets of his account book so that they can be read together is guilty. 
When they heard the terms, the law, that's what some of them thought. But that's not what Jesus meant. That's not what Jesus taught when he speaks about the law and the commandments. What Jesus means here is the permanent moral law of God revealed in the Old and eventually now the New Testament. The permanent moral law. In other words, the Bible gives moral principles that transcend time and culture that are revealed in the Scripture. Here's the heart of the verse. That's what we should get at. Whoever does and teaches them will be called great in heaven. He's not speaking of salvation. Again, you get to heaven through faith alone in Christ alone. He's not speaking about salvation. He's speaking now about status, greatness, position, which is determined by our obedience on the earth. The last chapter of the Bible, book of Revelation, the last chapter, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Picture it like a tip in a restaurant. You give the waiter a tip. You give the waitress a tip based upon what? Their service. It has nothing to do with the bill. The bill is the bill. It's a contract you made with the establishment when you sat down at the table and you ordered it because you saw what the price was. But the tip is something you give to the waiter based upon service. Every single Christian will face a judgment, not for salvation, not for their sins. That's done with. But we will all stand and be judged for what we did in obeying God or not once we're saved. It's in uh, one of the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in his body, whether good or bad. By the way, the word judgment seat there, bematos, meant a raised platform in a Jewish marketplace. And later on, it came to mean the raised platform at the Olympic Games when the runners would finish their course and the judge from the Bema seat would give the reward for the run. So in the end, when life is all over, we'll one day give an account of how we ran the Christian race, lived the Christian life. It comes by practicing obedience, our status, our greatness in heaven, to the revealed will of God in his word. And not only that, but by promoting obedience. For notice, whoever does and what? Teaches them. Let me ask you a question to think about this week. Who are you teaching? Who are you influencing in life? Who are you discipling? What other Christian are you mentoring and bringing alongside to raise them up to a higher level to obey God? Can you see that this attitude that Jesus is speaking about in these verses is far different from the attitude that some Christians have? Here's the attitude. What can I do to get by and still get into heaven? I just want to barely get by and just make it to heaven. What a bad attitude. Here's the attitude. You want to be great in God's kingdom? You want to be a hero? Obey God's truth. Obey His commandments. Live a life sold out in obedience to Him and help other people who are your brothers and sisters to do the same. You'll be called great. Your status will be great in the kingdom of heaven. I heard about a large department store in the United States who uh, one Christmas decided to sell a baby Jesus doll. It was Christmas time. 
And uh, they said they promised that it was washable and that it was unbreakable and cuddly. And they sold it with a little satin crib and straw. It was a flop. Nobody bought it. Nobody wanted it. In their last-ditch effort to promote the baby Jesus doll, they put a huge sign in the front of the department stores that read, Jesus Christ, mark down 50%, get them while you can. That's how a lot of people would love to live the Christian life. Give me Jesus light. Give me Christianity light. Give me the toned-down Jesus, not the in-your-face, you got to follow me everywhere Jesus, but just let me kind of skate by and do a few good deeds, and I'll call myself a Christian. No, greatness in the kingdom comes by practicing and promoting obedience to his word. So back to those three surprises in heaven. Surprise number one, who's there? You might be going, how did he get in? He's thinking the same thing about you, but you see him, how did he get in? What a surprise. Who's not there? Hey, Whatever happened to so-and-so? I don't know, but I haven't seen him. And surprise number three, that you're there. Will you be there? Are you sure you'll be there? Will you be called great? Will you be called least? So sum it up. To get into heaven, you need a righteousness that is greater than the most religious person on earth. Now, that might insult some of you. Could you say, well, you know, Skip, before I came in here this morning, I thought I was a pretty good person. You might be a good person. But you know what? I'm not the judge, and you're not the judge. God is the judge. There was a pastor who preached a sermon on uh, Jacob's ladder. You know the story in the Old Testament. His son was listening to it, and a few days later, the boy came to him and said, Dad, I've been thinking about your sermon on Jacob's ladder. It so impressed me, I had my own dream about it. Oh, tell me about it, said the pastor father. Well, Dad, I saw a ladder stretching from earth into heaven, only in my dream there were pieces of chalk at the bottom of the ladder, and uh, everybody who climbed the ladder had to grab a piece of chalk first and mark on each rung of the ladder for every time he has sinned in life. Wow, said the father. Interesting dream. Well, Dad, here's the real interesting part. I'm climbing the ladder, and I hear somebody and see somebody climbing down. Well, who was it? Well, it was you, Dad. Now Dad's really intrigued, and he says, climbing down? Why would I be climbing down? For what? And the boy smiled and said, for more chalk. (laughs) It's always foolish to rest upon your own goodness. Because God is the ultimate judge. So to get into heaven, you need a righteousness greater than the most religious person on earth. And it doesn't come by anything you could ever do. It comes by relying solely upon what he gives as you place your faith in Christ. But then once you have that ticket to heaven, obedience is expected. Once you are a Christian and you claim the name of Christ, obedience is expected. Kingdom dwellers are not known by breaking God's commandments, but by obeying them. One Christian leader wrote, Loving God is not an emotional goose bump, but a commitment to selfless obedience. Let's pray together for that. Heavenly Father, on this Sunday, on this Lord's Day, as the church has gathered together, your people, your saints, 
And we have done what Christians have done for thousands of years through history, rejoicing in song, giving of tithes and offerings, fellowshipping together, encouraging one another before and after, and taking time to feed upon, meditate on, and apply your word. As we have looked at this section of Scripture together on how does heaven work, right from the lips of the Lord Jesus, I'd, I would pray for, for all of us, Lord. We can only come on your terms. We can't decide upon our own as an alternate plan. And you said that we have to be poor in spirit that we need a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is one that you give freely by faith in Christ. Lord, just in case some might be here today who have been trusting in themselves, in their goodness, like that Pharisee who weighed his life against someone he thought was worse, but you said was righteous and justified because they admitted their poverty. I pray for anyone trusting in their own wealth, their own spiritual wealth, their own deeds, their own religious background. And I pray that they will come to faith in Christ alone. And then, Lord, transform the life. Because we would expect to see that anyone who names the name of Christ to be one who not only does, but teaches others to do what you said because you said that would mark a follower of Christ in the kingdom. May this church be known in this community as those who hear, do, and teach even what some would call the least of your commandments. May we be conformed to the image of our master. Lord, I pray that these lessons would linger on long and far this week in our places of work, the people we come in contact with, the difficulties we encounter. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name.